Introducing Spectacle, the ultimate eyewear experience. We offer a carefully curated collection of logo-free frames, so the focus is on you. We're located at 505 Tremont Street in Boston's historic South End neighborhood. Keep in mind that we only look expensive. Hope to see you soon, and enjoy the day. Baby Loves Tacos proudly supports the Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico podcast. Since 2016, we've been serving soulful whole Mexican style food out of a tiny storefront, 4508 Liberty Avenue in the Bloomfield section of Pittsburgh. Um, we believe in supporting the arts, community-based initiatives, and podcasts like Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico because uh, they add a richness and vibrancy to our lives, uh, help to connect people, build community, and uh, demonstrate that following your, your dreams and your passions and holding on to relationships and spreading the love and support that we hear so much about on the podcast uh, is, is really the only way to combat um, ever-changing world where big businesses and corporations are uh, squeezing out the small guy. So if you haven't already subscribed, if you don't support via Patreon um, or any of the other platforms, I would strongly encourage you to do so. It's a real privilege to listen to Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico, and it's a privilege to, to hear the stories about um, you know, Steve's experiences with many bands, uh, promoting, managing, and the really awesome stories from his guests. Something I look forward to every week, sometimes twice a week. And, um, you know, my life would be very different if I didn't have Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico to look forward to. All right, take care. I want to tell you about Joe's albums in their two locations. The original shop at 317 Main Street in downtown Worcester, Massachusetts, and their second location at 5 Market Street in the college hipster town of Northampton on Western Massachusetts. These are two amazing stores to go buy vinyl, both new and used, and a lot of other cool stuff too. It's hard to walk in either locale without walking out empty-handed due to their amazing collection of records and other cool goodies like t-shirts, mugs, posters, etc. And if you can't find what you're looking for in the retail shops, check out joesalbums.com. They got everything there, man. Everything. Well, maybe not everything, but almost everything. Joe's albums. We love them and you will too. Check out Joe's stores and tell them Twisted Rico sent you.
Welcome to Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your host, Steve Ricardo. We're back. <laughs> Took a little break, headed out to the West Coast, and now we're coming back in a big way. You just heard the first track from the debut EP by Bullet LaVolta, 1988. That one's called Baggage. And today we'll be playing you a conversation, a lengthy one at that, that I had with the original member of Bullet LaVolta, Dr. Corey Lug Brennan. That's right, another PhD rock and roller. The list is starting to grow. There's a long list of people that I wanted to talk to from day one that when I started this show, I know I say that a lot. Some I just didn't know if I could get for various reasons. And then there are the guests that people tell me I should get. Corey Lug Brennan was on both lists. His name kept coming up, and now I know why. What a nice dude, man. What a really nice dude. So stick around. I'm going to play that for you in a minute. Okay, so I went to Los Angeles, California for a short visit, about six days. Had a great time visiting friends and every beach I could possibly make it to. Even made it to the Rainbow Bar and Grill on Sunset. That's right. I spent a lot of time down in the South Bay, you know, Hermosa, Redondo, Torrance, Manhattan. I spent one night in the Valley in Studio City. And of course, I drove down to Panga Canyon and joined the views all the way until I hit Malibu and the beautiful Pacific Ocean. Uh, I stayed with my old friend Debbie and her husband David for a few days. 
And I caught up with a bunch of my old friends along the way. Alan Kraut, former Boston sound man and professor. Uh, Chris Willett from Flexi and many other bands uh, came with me to Sugar Taco, man, in the one in the Valley. I've been dying to go there since they opened those two locations, but we went to the one in the Valley. It was great, really good food. If you want vegan Mexican food, check out Sugar Taco on Ventura Boulevard, Sherman Oaks in the Valley. It's fantastic. I saw my old buddy, Phil Bloom, who one of the first guys I got to know early on in the music business when he worked at Gem and I was at Enigma and we've been friends ever since. And that goes back about four decades. I also saw my friend Henry from the band Aloud, who was on the show not too long ago. And of course, my best friends is the first grade Jimmy Thayer. <laughs> yeah, we hooked up in Hermosa, like I do every time I go out there. And I ate tacos at about every stop I possibly could get tacos at. <laughs> the last night was special. We had dinner at the Rainbow with several of the people I just mentioned. And Pamela DeBars even walked by our table with her entourage. That's right. I'm with the band, Pamela DeBars. Uh, the problem with L.A. that I have is that you can never see it all in one week. I don't even think you could see it all in two weeks or three weeks or even a month. I love that place. I love L.A. That's right. I do. And, you know, I'm going back there soon. OK, and we're back. There's so much to Corey Luke Brennan's connection to Bolt LaVolta and the Lemonheads. And like I mentioned, everyone you mention his name to speaks very highly of him. His music resume is pretty impressive, but it barely compares to his academic resume. He went to Penn, Oxford. He studied in Italy. He went to grad school at Harvard, where he got his PhD. And these days, he's a professor at Rutgers University. And that's not even all of it, as we find out in our talk. He had a very extensive academic life going on. He worked at, went to all these schools and had other jobs. And it's just amazing that he was able to be a rock and roller at the same time. While he was at Harvard, he was also a DJ at WHRB, his famous record hospital show, where he met many of the people he ended up playing with and being in the Boston music scene with, including Clay Tarver, Bill Whalen, Ben Diley, Jesse Perez, and more. There were a bunch of people over there that all ended up in bands. Along with Tarver and Willen and drummer Chris Gutmacher, he started Bullet LaVolta, and they recruited Indiana transplant Kurt Davis, a.k.a. Yucky Gipe. Later, he played with the Lemonheads with Jesse and Ben Diley. Uh, Bullet LaVolta came out of the box hard and immediately drew attention. They became really popular really quickly in, in the Boston music scene. Although Corey was highly involved in his schooling as a grad student, he played all the band's earliest shows and recorded with the band on their debut EP, the self-titled debut EP. It has three songs on there that he played on. And he also has songs that he co-wrote that appear on the Gift album. But he tells us in the interview that he couldn't keep up with Bolt LaVolta's schedule and had to step aside. And that's when Kenny Chambers took over. He later joined the uh, excuse me, the Lemonheads right before they were getting ready to go on their European tour. And check this out. The European tour was with Bolt LaVolta. So here he is in Europe 
with his friends in both bands, which was the first time either band had been overseas, and it was a legendary tour. His time with the Lemonheads wasn't going to last long either after he got his PhD in Harvard, but while he was there, he did an awful lot. He played a huge role with the band, played on many of the songs on the Lick record, including Mallow Cup and the iconic cover of Luca, and he co-wrote the song Caso di Ferro. There's a good story behind that, which we hear about. He then recorded... Uh, the Lemonheads' first major release, the Lovey album, with Evan Dando, Jesse, and drummer David Ryan. And we really get into that in the interview. So hold on, and I'll tell you more about that. You know, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Lovey is my favorite Lemonheads record. I like just about everything about it. And Corey Luke Brennan has a lot to do with that. Lovey didn't get great reviews when it came out. And it's barely mentioned when the topic of the best Lemonheads records come up. This is understandable with the success of It's a Shame About Ray and Come On, Feel the Lemonheads. Personally, I've said on many occasions that Lick was my favorite Lemonheads album. And maybe it's a toss up between Lick and Lovey. In fact, that era of the band is the one that I like the best, midway through 88 to 90. Don't get me wrong. It's about it's a shame about Ray and come on feel the lemon heads are great records. I guess I really liked Ben and Evan and Jesse Perez, the core of the early band. Our guest today was also a solid addition, especially when Ben left right before Lovey. Suddenly, Evan was the man, but something was missing when they headed into the studio to record their major label debut for Atlantic. Producer Paul Coldery told us when he was on the show that they had, they had arrived to the studio and they barely had enough songs for an album. But they had a mate, but they had the major label budget, and somehow the record came out the way it did, which I think is pretty amazing. Two of the songs were co-written by Corey, Little Seed and The Door, both brilliant, and the rest of the album is good too. It did contain the singles, it didn't contain, excuse me, it didn't contain the singles that Atlantic, Atlantic Records expected, but it didn't matter to fans like myself. So Corey did a European tour with the Lemonheads, was on the legendary Peel Sessions. In fact, on the version of The Door that they did at the Peel Sessions. And please stick around because we're going to play all five minutes and 40 seconds of that song after the interview. And you have to listen to it. It's great. Corey actually sings the lead on that song. It's the only time he did it. When they recorded the song for Lovey, Evan sings the lead. Okay. Um, played on that entire record, the Lovey record, and then he moved to Pennsylvania and started working at Bryn Mawr University. Okay, so I guess you can tell by now that I was very excited. Very excited to do this interview. The Corey Luke Brennan story is a good one. Before I play the interview, let me apologize for my brain freeze in the middle of the interview and forgetting Todd Phillips' name during the interview. Can you imagine that? The guy was on my show. He's one of the best guests I ever had, and I couldn't remember his name in the interview. I swear it was a momentary slip, people. I'm not completely losing my mind or my memory, I swear. Okay, so I'm excited. Hopefully you're excited. And here I am talking with Corey Lug Brennan. All right. Great to have you. Yeah, this is, oh, thanks so much. This is uh, a great honor. I just saw that you finished your 250th show. And um, and basically then looking at the roster, it's a who's who 
of the uh, you know punk hardcore and indie elite. So basically, um, yeah. So this is a great honor. And you liked my government issue shirt. I like what you said before about Tom Lyle. Oh man, I worship <laughs> I worship government issue. The thing is that when I was in Bullet La Volta in particular, that was the band that really brought us all together. And we're talking '86 or so. And uh, oh, we completely and it was Lyle that was the person because it was guitar tone and also as a guitarist. I mean, I will I would say that I Lyle is my favorite guitarist in the world more so than you know Ingvi or uh, basically <laughs> Jimmy Page or anyone. I mean, seriously, he's he's the he's the absolute greatest. And I listen um, probably to government still to this day to government issue more than any other band ever. So it's a and all stages. And also to tell you the truth is they often ask on the internet, uh, name a celebrity death that choked you up or whatever. And I can only think of mm. two that really, really, really affected me. People I didn't know, but that really affected me. And one is Stab. Uh, I'm actually getting a little choked up thinking about Stab. I mean, basically, um, and Sylvester is the other one, uh, basically in the 80s. Um, but it was it was Stab's death and just tracing his whole I'd seen GI any number of times, but basically uh, being on Facebook and seeing his sort of battle with cancer. And um, I mean, just, yeah, it really, really affected me. I just, it's still, still now I'm actually sort of tearing up thinking, thinking about stab. Yeah. Just being associated with that, the U record for me. I mean, I love all their earlier stuff, but to me, the U oh. record, they really put it together and uh, it's it's still one of my favorite. I can't believe I worked on that record because oh, it's one of the greatest records ever made. I think. Oh, it was. I remember putting it on the turntable the first time we had. I used to work at WHRB, the college radio station, and the first time I ever heard it, we got at the station, and we had this old Technics um, uh, turntable. I don't want to say old. It was it was a great turntable. It was an old one, uh, hooked up to some sort of crappy speakers. We put it on, and it was like a life changing experience. I just couldn't believe. That this record existed and then um when i was in bullet la volta i'm getting ahead of the story here but when i was in bullet la volta it was bill whalen the bass player now to de sadly departed who, yeah. he was the ultimate gi fan and really was, oh my god it was just yeah it was he we all worship gi but basically he he was he, he more so than anybody and then there was another moment this is like late 80s um, that Clay Tarver from Bullet Vault actually met and had a meal with Tom Lyle. And we felt like that this was like the pantheon. I mean, it was like, it was like unbelievable. It was the type of thing that um, it, I, it was, we couldn't believe our luck that we actually had sort of one degree of, of separation from this guy. So, oh, that's fantastic. Oh, man. Yeah. You love GI. Yeah. They're one yeah. of my favorites. I think I, I, I I didn't expect to get teary-eyed so early in the morning, but just think no, just thinking about Stab, I mean, basically, and he was an amazing, just as a performer, as an impresario, as an animator, not just of the band, but the entire scene. Um, he was the glue, I think, that there were so many great bands that came out of D.C., but he was the glue that kept that entire scene together, that tied together the Maryland, the D.C., the North of Virginia, the, and then basically export, he was, you know, everyone knows Minor Threat, et cetera, but he was the one who really exported D.C. hardcore you know, so. Yeah, you're right about that. I know my friend Al Quint feels the same way about government issue. He, he, we love talking about them. There's so many good things to talk about. I want to, we, we can get back into that some more, but I wanted to talk about you for a little, well, for a lot, actually. Uh, I think I read somewhere that you're from Scranton. Totally. Yeah. It's the, usually the first thing, actually, I'm going to turn off, I'm going to get pings from my 
my work email here unless I turn it off. The um um yeah, this is usually the first thing I tell about people, tell people about myself. I'm from Scranton, Pennsylvania. And I'm really, really, really proud to be from Scranton. It was it's a it's I have a, a my family's been from coal miners, uh, et cetera, from northeastern Pennsylvania. And um so I strongly identify with the with the area. But the other thing that I tell people, the second thing is that I grew up on the same street as Joe Biden and went to the same grade school and the same church. You did? Uh, now, 17, yeah, 17 wow. years apart. But, but the thing is that Biden's Scranton shtick is for real. I mean, he's it's like he's actually a known figure in the neighborhood and people know him, remember him. He knows people. Um, and uh, basically, it's not a put on. And um uh, it's it's a real it, it, people of a certain age either all remember Biden or they pretend to remember Biden, but basically it's it's a real it's a real Scranton thing. But the other thing about Scranton is that it had this overheated music scene in the '60s and '70s. Not so much original bands, but like a ridiculous amount of cover bands of just a, a really high level that never made it out of northeastern Pennsylvania. So that was like my. That was my formation was hanging Upper out, bands. playing in bands, yeah, playing in bands and and basically and some of them were really ambitious to be like, you know, a Yes tribute band or Emerson, Lake and Palmer tribute and and people carrying around their Hammond B3s like so they could be like Keith Emerson. I mean, it's just like and these are 17 year old kids and like um, everyone basically, um, I mean, if you yeah, it was just an overheated scene. We're talking mid 70s and there was only one band ever that made it out of northeastern pennsylvania it was a band called the boys b-u-o-y-s that had a um a one-hit wonder called timothy yeah and, I, remember, I remember them yeah and so basically i'll just show you what just 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 to prove it <laughs> um i we we worship basically this is the um yeah this is called uh, uh, somebody else's dream it's a um it's a book on the boys i'm sort of embarrassed about my background here but basically it's you people so listening will have to go on youtube for this part to check out yeah the book. <laughs> it's like you know i i live i i lived in western pa for five i lived in pittsburgh for five years but i used to drive down 84 all the time so i feel i feel like i i, I don't i think i may have stopped in scranton a couple of times actually because i usually stop in different places and check them out when you were growing up there besides all these cover bands and everything what, what were you listening to and what did what kind of music did you get into when you're like a teenager? Yeah, well, the important thing is I'm, I was born in 59, so in the Eisenhower era. And so basically I was 17 when I went to college, which was 1977, which was peak. It, punk rock hit me like no tomorrow. I mean, it was just like it was the moment I had moved away from home. I was, I was a little late, you know, it was September of 77. But basically it was in September 77, I first started listening to the clash, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that just like changed, changed my life. And I just knew that that was a direction I was going to go on in perpetuity, but growing up, you know, my friends, all my friends and I, we all listened to prog rock. We listened to yes. We listened to Genesis. Um, but basically my absolute favorite was Mahavishnu orchestra. I am basically, so in Scranton, you know, the thing is I mostly listened, I listened to a lot of jazz. I listened to a lot of stuff on the ECM label, um, and, you know, I remember John Abercrombie, one, uh, et cetera, et cetera, this type of thing, you know, especially guitar related stuff, but McLaughlin with Mahavishnu was amazing. The other thing is about Scranton is that, um, you know, a lot of touring bands came through. So I went to see every single band that you could possibly imagine since I was like age 12. And, um, 
you know, and everything was walking distance at that time, you know, at least for the big venues from where I was living in Scranton. And so, saw lots and lots of bands and, you know, but, you know, a lot of them made a sort of negative impact on me. I went to see Kiss, for example, and um, I just thought it was stupid and ridiculous. I mean, I just felt it was over bloated. I didn't think it was all that great. I thought it was just complete hype. Um, you know, the basic songs I thought were okay, but like the whole persona, the live act, you know, and you know, whatever. And so a lot of this stuff was sort of leaving me cold. Um, and so that's like when in 77, things really, really, I mean, I just saw the talking heads very early in sort of October of 77. I saw in, in a juice bar in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, um, and, you know, you could still see bands at really small, at, at really small venues in 77, 78. And then I was determined I had to get to England. And so I went in the summer of 78 and tried to see as many bands as I could. Really? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So I went to the Marquee every night and, um, you know, and the band, believe it or not, the best of all the ones I saw. And this was 78. I mean, it was still going really strong. Yeah. Basic, but it wasn't the same, like you know, this same feeling as a year previous when you have like Clash, Sex Pistols and Susie all on the same bill. I mean, that was that had moved on. But there was the there was the whole other layer, you know, the, the bands of the la of the level of like the Lurkers and uh, the the boys, B-O-Y-S, who I thought were the best of all yeah. the bands by far. Um, you know, you could still catch those bands. And uh also it was, it was a smaller scene, you know, it's like, you know, the thing is, but then I actually moved to the UK in 79 to 80 uh, for a year at University of Edinburgh. And that was ridiculous. And in fact, actually, I saw so many bands. I mean, and to the point where I had a ticket to see the specials, Madness and Selector, and I gave it away because I had to write a paper for the next morning. I mean, there was it was just like so much stuff. Um, and at that point, the big bands were even bigger. Like I, I, I saw the clash for the first time, but they were in a very big venue. I mean, not a stadium, but they were in a, you know, sort of a concert hall. Um, uh, a friend of mine said, do you want to go see Joy Division? And I said, no, again, I like, I have an exam the next day. <laughs> no, no, no. But the, but the show never happened. The Edinburgh show never happened because then Ian Curtis took his life. Uh, and his own life. yeah. And so the show never happened, but I remember, but there was so much stuff happening. And um, I also, um, you know, and then I went back to the UK another time, 81 to 83 for two more years. So I lived in the UK for three years in my youth. And that again was ridiculous. I mean, basically, um, so I decided to follow the birthday party. I mean, to actually follow them. It was the only time I've ever followed a band, like wherever they would play, I would just go. Wow. And um, yeah, and to the point where Nick Cave actually, would recognize me in the audience. I mean, basically I was at every, like if, if it was a show, I was there. And cause that was, again, it was something that just spoke to my soul. I was just like, I, I, I couldn't believe the band existed, how, how great they were live. And they were just like, not just musically, but just every single member, as you know, of that band had like the strongest persona, but then you see yeah. them on the street, you see them on the street in London. I mean, it was just like, you know, it was not, not an, a, a, you know, basically cause you know, on Portobello Road or, you know, Kings Road or, you know, some of the, the you know, clusters of places, you just see them on the street. Hey, so will I, you play, oh, I'm sorry, I was going to ask you, were you playing guitar yet by this point? Yeah, I was basically, but everything up to this point, I was never in a successful band until Bullet La Volta, which was fast forward to 87, but I was in high school cover bands. Um, uh, basically, I actually formed a band called Nirvana 
in the 70s yeah basically that was the name of the band it was called nirvana yeah well, i wish we had stuck with it and uh, basically yeah, and then like wait a but basically um lots of high school cover bands um in college i had a band in scotland that was sort of mod revival believe it or not uh, but we never you know it, it never went anywhere um uh in i played with a band called the responsible teenagers that actually recorded a single that i was not on uh, i joined the band after they recorded the single and that was a ticket the one thing that came out of that we played at Max's Kansas City. Wow. Yeah. And that was, yeah. And so basically, um, yeah, we played at Max's and that was, this is 1980. Um, and that was, again, it was a scene. I mean, basically um, Hell's Angels did the security. And basically if you argue that the club was at the top of a, of a very tall flight of stairs. And the two things I remember about the evening was not even the performance, but one is the Hell's Angels parked their motorcycles that you can move your van in but they left very little space. Um, and so basically the parallel parking between the two Hells Angels Harleys was like the most harrowing experience. I wasn't driving the van, but basically just, just, just that was terrifying. But then I remember you had to go up, a, you were treated like royalty if you're in the band, but if you started like haggling, you know, I'm on the guest list, the Hells Angels would push you down the <laughs> stairs. I mean, basically a, a flight of like, <laughs> you know, 36 stairs. At least you didn't get stabbed, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. It was like ultimate, it would have been ultimate. So, so anyway, I was in all these bands that went nowhere, but then finally in 81 to 83, 82, 83, I formed a psychedelic revival band called the beyond. And um, which was actually successful. We had, um, um, I was doing, it's, it sounds lame, but basically I was doing a degree at Oxford at the time, you know, it doesn't sound very punk rock, but basically, um, uh, and, um, uh, uh, but basically formed this band and we had a lot of gigs at Oxford, but we got a, our single reviewed in Melody Maker and um, Sounds. I didn't and, know about the Beyond. You got me. Oh, with yeah, that I'll get you. I'll get you. I, I'll send you some links. I'll send I you love swag. Um, I got to talk to you about this for a minute here, because uh, before we get into all the Boston stuff, Right. Um, you know, your education uh, is remarkable. And, you know, I, I've had a lot of smart people on the show. People are surprised, you know, like I had Dr. Greg Turner on the show, <laughs> who like comes from like a hardcore, you know, Ben Diley, another Harvard guy. Yeah, totally. Yes. LEV from the Charms Vassar. That's a pretty high school. Linnea Herzog, who's uh, a PhD also. She's a, a uh uh, neurology, neurology, I think she, you know what, I, I, I'm a media communications guy, so forgive me, but I've had a lot of people on my show that actually have major degrees. And now I have you, you're also a PhD. I have you here. You went to Penn, you went to school in Rome, you got a master's at Oxford and a PhD in Harvard. How does all this fit in with your rock and roll? It's like bizarre because when I was a kid growing up, I used to think all the poor kids were the rockers. Well, you know, Brian May is my, one of my favorite guitars and he's oh, a yeah. PhD also. But how did you manage trying to, with these education, with this kind of education on a high level to like play at the same time as well? Yeah, I never took any time off. That's the thing. I've never, I've never took a gap year or took time off or I was in, I was in school constantly the entire time. And it was toward the end. That's why I, to cut to the chase why I had to leave the Lemonheads. At that point, I ran out of my luck because I was became an assistant professor at Bryn Mawr College. And you can't really be a tenure track assistant professor and being in a touring band at the same time. Yeah. So um, that's like, so if people ask, why did you leave the Lemonheads? The reason I left the Lemonheads is I never took any time off and I completely 
burn the candle at both ends. And um, but it's the thing that only reason I got through any of those degrees was because of rock and particularly punk. The only With the only reason is because it kept my sanity at basically at every one of those places you mentioned, especially Harvard. And um, it was, you know, talk about work life balance. Well, basically, the balance was I was pretty much, you know, my main commitment in especially toward the end it was pretty much toward rock and roll but um yeah but basically then I, at the toward the end i i sort of ran out of when you when you were at penn because you went there for four years right did, three did years you... i spent one year at edinburgh basically i spent a junior year abroad at edinburgh with 7980 so did you see a lot of bands in philadelphia because that was a pretty active scene back then oh totally yeah it, it was like uh, again, basically, if I went through one thing I promised myself never to do is to look at club listings of any city I ever lived in, you know, basically historic club listings, because if I saw all the bands I missed and I once, <laughs> that, I once just looked at one, you know, if, if if you go back and take a look at, you know, people post this stuff on the Internet all the time. What's happening on a typical, you know, week in 84, 85, 86 in Boston and yeah. you know, basically. On any given night, you have 12 to 15 venues, and then each one of those venues has three to five bands, and every single one of them you know the name of, you know the songs, and I mean, you it, it's insane. It's insane. And so basically, this is the same, I feel the same way about um, going back to Philadelphia in the 70s. The, the main club, there was two clubs, one was called the Hot Club, which was a phenomenal punk rock club, like in the sort of great the hot club was like on the circuit. People would play like the edge in Toronto, the rat in Boston or other, other places, you know, CBs in New York, then come down to the hot club. And then, you know, uh, I don't know if the nine 30 was still, it was, it was, was functioning already in the seventies, but um, a lot of people went through there. The best show I saw a number of shows, the best show ever I saw it was nine, 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 the British band. Homicide. And, yeah. Homicide. Yeah. They were the, yeah. they, again, I saw them again in London as well, um, and they were phenomenal. Again, it's, you know, if you made your list of the 100 greatest British punk bands of the 70s, 999 might might not make the cut. But live, they were as, they were better. They actually could play their instruments and, like, were really, like, they were really good, really good. And so I remember them distinctly. But, I you know, I could, I'm sure I could have seen Pure Hell. You know, or one of these great bands of the of Philadelphia in the seventies. But well, I was just—I I was looking at your timeline, and if you graduated in seventy-seven, that means in college, in the right eight, around 80, 81, you would have been in yeah. Philadelphia, which is when you know GI and all those bands really started like yes. taking off. Um, yes. I also read about Super Fettizzoni. Italian... Yeah, Super I'm very proud of Super Fatazione. Was that I, like, I mean, that, that wasn't your first band because you mentioned no. the Beyond, but this was a band that you you played in in Italy. Yes, between between the, uh, this is, an, it's uh, here's the 32nd version of the story. I was in La Volta, but I had already, even when I when La Volta hit it, I knew I was going to Rome because I had won a fellowship to the American Academy in Rome, which is which is again a life-changing experience probably probably the most fundamental experience other than punk rock the american academy in rome was the, the most important thing that happened to me and um so i knew i was going to italy and um and so basically i went and there wasn't much happening at all in in rock i mean basically again i would see every show of every touring band that would come through rome which was not that many um the two shows that i saw in rome this is leading to super Fatazione. 
Suicide were the loudest band I had ever seen. Wow. There was, the loud, the loudest. It was r- ridiculous how, how, first of all, how good they were. But how, that's the one thing I remember. It was unbelievably loud. But there was a squat in um, in Rome called Forte Prenestino, and it's an old military. It's probably a 19th century military base that was seized and right before I got there, like in '85, and basically and turned into a sort of autonomous anarchist community. And there have been so many efforts to close it down. It's still going strong. It's like now it has like a daycare center. It has a restaurant as a cinema. I mean, it's like completely a garden. It has. But but they that was the place where you'd see shows, but at risk of your life, because basically to see the bands, you had to go into an underground munitions bunker with like 30 feet, wall, 30 foot walls through a narrow tunnel. And it was a, the, it's probably the biggest fire trap I've ever willingly put myself into. And um, but the shows there were just incredible. But the two great band, I well, I'll just limit to one. Again, it's a band you would never think that you know if you list the great '80s bands, you know, et cetera, it was RKL, Rich Kids on LSD. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. It was they were unbelievable. They were just Excuse just me. as a live band, they were just. I still think about it. it. Was I probably when people ask me what's the best show you've ever been to in your life was Rich Kids and LSD in Rome, and um, uh, they were just unbelievable so anyway but i i wanted to make some music of my own i wanted to be part of the scene i wanted to play at the forte and so i was i met these two kids i think on the rome metro and one of them had a husker do if i remember i think one of them had a husker do shirt or whatever and one was 15 no they were both 15 and i'm like 28 at this time right and so basically we start talking and one plays drums and the other one plays bass and i played guitar i said let's form a band and we needed a singer and we got this, um, we, we didn't, so there was someone at the American Academy in Rome who is, was a fairly noted designer, uh, basically an architect, his name was George Quarrell. And he sang, he, he was 42 years old at the time. And I couldn't believe that anyone was actually could reach the age of 42. That was like the <laughs> oldest person I knew was, I couldn't believe you're 42 years old, but he was 42 years old. He was the singer and we had the two 15 year old, the drummer and the bass player. And it was actually good. We used to record, not record, practice in this space, which still exists, um, a stone's throw from the Fountain of Trevi, this sort of underground chamber where you can make total noise. And um, it was so it was so much fun. And these guys have remained like some of my best friends in the world. And to, to the point where the last time I played with them was last year. I mean, basically, we still, oh, wow. whenever, I'm, whenever in Italy, we play a show. And um, so basically, uh, October 2022 was the last show I played with them. And I think um, I think I got my. Uh, or, so you you played in the Italian band in the late 80s because I thought yeah, it would be early. One year. It's one year. It would have been 87, 88. OK, it's so been, you had already played with Bolt LaVolta at that yeah, point. Between Bolt LaVolta and the Lemonheads. Yeah. And uh, there's actually the Lemonheads do a. Super Fatazione song. We covered a Super Super Fatazione song, which is called. um, It's uh, on Lick. Yeah, on Lick. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. because he sings it in Italian. Evan sings in Italian. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna. I'm. I'm, Your your career is really good, so I'm trying to get get everything here. You became a DJ at WHRB Record Hospital, which is a famous like underground radio show. A lot of alumni from that show have gone on to work for labels, bands, whatever. That's when you met Clay, Bill, and Chris. So you guys were all DJs there? 
It's a little, it's a slightly complicated, but not much. One thing is basically it's a cluster of bands that all feed into each <laughs> other. But one one band, surprisingly, is the band Meltdown. Uh, Meltdown was my first band in the 80s at, in Boston. And again, it was like, we wanted to be, we played in Central, We the house was on Green Street in Central Square, right near TT's, right near where the Middle East is now. And um, it's like literally one block away. So when we played TT's, we could actually wheel our equipment just to the club. I mean, just down the street. And it was it was great. And Meltdown was, uh, the singer is called Jeffrey, his name is Jeffrey Ray Wine. He's a screenwriter in Hollywood now. And then Alex Vera and Chris Guttmacher was the drummer and I was the guitarist. And um, we we're called Meltdown because we actually had a show at Harvard and we we didn't even have a name for the band, like it, basically. And then Chernobyl happened. So we said Meltdown. And then we basically, it was so, I don't know how to describe it, but basically <laughs> juvenile. Um, uh, we basically used like cut out from the Boston, you know, papers, uh, you know, the Boston Herald, you know, the headline for Meltdown. And that was, that was the name of our band. But it was, the band was trying to pay tribute to the metalcore crossover stuff of 85, 86. That was like our, that was our, our goal. And then basically the band continued, but Guttmacher played drums for also, uh, while staying in Meltdown, he also played drums for La Volta. So Chris came in from a, a different different perspective. Uh, he came in with me from Meltdown and then Clay and Bill, who are all, all these guys are much younger than me, that basically um, I met at Harvard. And then we advertised for a singer and that's how we met Kirk Davis. And we were like, to tell you the truth is, and I'm very open about this with Kirk, uh, AKA yucky guy. He had just come from Indiana and had been, I mean, he was completely plugged into the Indiana scene with the zero boys and all. I mean, he had done the artwork for the zero boys. Yeah. His name's on their record. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, basically, and we met this guy and we couldn't believe our luck. I said, like, we, I'm just paraphrasing here. It's like, finally, someone's going to give our band some credibility because like Clay and, and, and I'm not telling the story very well, but it was Chris and I were a pair. We had been in Meltdown. Clay and Bill were a pair because they were both Harvard varsity basketball players. What? Yes, I didn't know yes. that. Yeah. And Bill, well, they're tall. <laughs> yeah. Bill was like an all main athlete, basketball player. And so, and Clay Tarver was an all Texas sort of basketball player. Both were, and Bill was number 31 on the Harvard basketball team. And it was, um, um, yeah. So basically Bill was, Bill was a serious, wow. serious basketball player. And so, but we all sort of converged on WHRB. So Bill and Clay and I were the DJs. And then we advertised, we auditioned a number of people, which is an interesting story. And then we finally, but we finally met Kurt. We couldn't believe our, our luck. And Kurt also, this is the other thing, this goes to show this sort of punk rock mentality or sort of, whatever uh we thought this was a dream come true because not only did he have the credentials he was a great singer he was a great person but he worked in a copy shop in harvard square he worked at i can't remember the name of it, a photocopy shop perfect and we said oh my god this is incredible basically because free flyers you know and uh yeah so basically the fact he worked in there and um and we've also had um, we practiced in chris Guttmacher's house in brookline but also in the harvard dorms we had various one thing about Harvard is that every, at least at the back of the day, there's these houses, the undergraduate houses, and there's tw 12 of them. I mean, when they say it's a house, it's 350 you know, students. But basically every year they would um, close one of the houses during the summer and be completely vacant um, for renovations. And the one I was living in, because I actually had an administrative job, 
again, it had a swimming pool, which has been since boarded over, um, and we could make total noise. And um, so we rehearsed in the Harvard House, right there in the middle of Harvard Square. And uh, it was just glorious. I mean, it was just, it was fantastic. You know, I didn't go to Harvard, but I did work at Seven Divinity uh, Ave for five years. I worked in the um, molecular cellular biology graduate program. I had like an, I was managing bands and working there. This is after I moved back to Boston from California. Uh, let me get this straight here because I'm trying to figure this out. I you I know you, you said the band formed in late 86 and the EP came out in 88. Um, right. The Rumble. Did you play for either Bullet LaVolta or the Lemonheads at the Rumble? Because they were both in it the same year in 88. Yeah, no, I didn't. I went, why do I think I went to the Rumble? Did I play in the Rumble? I can't remember. It was basically, I was, I was out by, basically my time in LaVolta was, um, uh, the peak was really 80, the first nine months of 87, uh, or the first eight months of 1987. The, the reason, like, I, the reason. The reason I brought that up is I saw Bullet Lavota three times, but it was all in L.A., so I never saw you in the band. I didn't see Kenny either. I think when I saw the band, Kenny was already out, too. It was after they got to the EP and then, you know, the, the major label debut, which things didn't end well for Bullet. I had... Um, um, Oh my God! <laughs> I can't even remember who I had on my show. Uh, the second drummer of Bolt LaVolta, which I'm having a me total mental block right now, on the Todd show. Pops. Yeah, Todd. I had Todd on the show, and you know, I saw him too. I never saw you or Chris because I. The only time I saw the band in Boston was at the Rumble. And I was a judge that night, and I voted for Bolt LaVolta. Oh, awesome! <laughs> it was an no, eighty-eight. I didn't, I didn't play the Rumble. I used to go you know, every year, but it was like, the thing is, um, um, yeah, I, I, my, my performance with Bull, I probably only played a dozen shows with Bull LaVolta, um, and, um, it, maybe 15, I don't know, um, but they were good ones. I mean, we, I remember supporting Rollins, uh, I don't know how I remember this, but I remember the band was paid, a, a, a sold out show. We were paid $37 and 50 cents. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so basically I had, I had met, um, I had met Rollins before and uh, I had met him at a signing at Newberry Comics. But then basically we were at this, there was a moment, it was just Rollins and I were the only ones backstage and he wow. had this weird meditative, no, but, it was, but he couldn't talk to him because he went into this like weird, maybe he didn't, so he didn't have to talk to me, but he went into this like weird meditative, you know, sort of like, uh, it was before going on, this sort of, I, I don't know how to describe it. He created this force field around himself and basically was like, you know, hyper, hyper focused before going on. Of course, he was an unbelievable performer. Yeah. Um, we played with Dag Nasty and that was with Brian Baker. Oh, my God. Was this the yeah. field day era or? Uh, this was, yes. And it was, I'm trying to remember who was P in the. Peter Cortner was Peter Cortner and yes. Doug Carrion. Yeah, I put that field yeah. day record out too. Yeah, that was a good. It's funny because Todd, Todd, I'm yes. sorry, I forgot. I don't know why I couldn't remember Todd Phillips. I blacked out for a minute there or something. He told me a story about how he met Kenny Chambers. You guys, the, all these weird connections between all these bands, the Lemonheads, Bolt, LaVolta, Moving Targets, is amazing. It's like you guys were all one big group of guys. Blake that Blake Babies and and also Meltdown. It was like basically yeah, it because was, they it, all... It's, it's it's all this sort of like the same mini scene and, and trading, you know, members and stuff like that. 
Yeah, because he told me he met, uh, you know, Kenny at a Dag Nasty show. So I imagine all you guys are probably at that at the Dag Nasty show. <laughs> also, I could just to intersect. Here, here's my life story in ten seconds. I show up at Harvard in 1983, and I um, uh, I move into my dorm and I put on the radio, and Curtis is on the radio, Curtis Casella. <laughs> Yeah. And playing Boston Hardcore. I never heard any of this stuff. He's playing DYS. He's playing SSD. He's playing, I mean, he's playing Gangrene. And Tang Wan had not yet come out yet, but he was like promoting Tang Records. And I, I had just come straight from the UK. And I was like, I was listening to, I was, I was, I wasn't really listening to punk in the UK because I, other than Discharge and GBH, I mean, a lot of the stuff I didn't think was actually all that great. The, the sort of, you know, the 1980s British. Blitz. I saw all those bands, but basically I, it really wasn't that, that great. And I knew, and I was absent from 81 to 83, and I had an a, a idea. I, I knew who, you know, the Descendants were and Black Flag, and, and I, I knew that stuff was happening in the, U, in, in, in the United States that I was missing out on. But I didn't, I have to confess, I didn't really know how awesome the Boston scene is when I moved there. I mean, I had, again, a vague awareness, you know, but basically Basically, but with all those with all those bands, just you can make make a very long list. Um, uh, and Burma had just broken up or played their last show. Is that is that correct? In eighty three? Yeah, I was at that show at the Bradford Hotel. Yeah. Yes, Bradford Hotel. Yeah. So we're in the wake of it. So I show up, and I cannot tell you what my first like week in Boston was like. First of all, I turn on the radio, and I hear these. And I say, I, I have to learn about all these bands. I want to be part of the scene. Then basically, I show up at WHRB. I said because I'm, I was a graduate student and it's, it's an undergraduate organization. But I said I really, really, really want to do this. This is like I I wanted to be a DJ more than anything else in my life. I'm WHRB. So they assigned me to this guy called Dean Wareham. Dean Wareham is my trainer, right? And Wareham is exactly the, he was the same then as he is now. And he says you got to check out this band Mission of Burma. I said I've never heard of them. He said no, you got to put it. And then it was like one of these moments. I said holy cow. And then you know so you had. The scene at WHRB, um, which I mean, you know, Wareham was just like one of many people, and uh, and he basically the dean at the end of the year said, you know, I've I have this band with this guy Damon, you know, and Krakowski and Naomi, and it's called Speedy and the Castanets. Would you produce it? <laughs> so, and uh, so I remember going to hear one of their rehearsals. And I said, oh, my God, these guys aren't going anywhere. Like, I, there's nothing I can do for them. <laughs> so, <laughs> famous, famous last words. And uh, so basically, uh, of course, later, and Galaxy is also, you know, part of it. I wouldn't say Galaxy was not part of our scene. Uh, but it was, but we, I knew them really, really well. And I actually taught Damon in a course uh, as a teaching assistant. And then the other thing, this is just another Boston angle, is that there was this guy called David Mays, who was one of my, he was a WHRB DJ, he was also one of my classes, and he founded the Source magazine out of WHRB, and he basically, the initial mailing address is the WHRB studio, and so he had, there was a whole, the Boston hip-hop scene of that time, and basically, we're talking 88, 89, um, and uh, uh, that was blowing up as well, and so there was, it was a lot of stuff. And, you know, just one last person I just want to mention this whole sort of mix, in addition to all these bands sort of feeding into each other, is Ruane, Billy Ruane. The great and, Billy um, Ruane. Oh, my God. And basically, you can't write the history of Boston rock without, you know, Ruane, it was, again, he, you know, as it turned out, 
we suspected at the time, but we didn't really know. A lot of these shows, he sort of just paid out of his own pocket. And he, uh, he put these ridiculous bills together. He, he uh, I mean, he just brought everyone together. And um, anyone who knows Ruane from the, from the day is like, you'd see him and it would just brighten up your entire day. It's like, you'd see the guy, he goes, Corey. And then he's like hugging you and he's kissing you and like slobbering on you. <laughs> it's just, and it, was, it was fantastic. I would see Billy. I was like, oh, you know, basically it was like your day would just brighten. He just, he just, again, he animated an entire scene. Um, and I don't think Boston in the 80s, 90s, <laughs> zero zeros would have been the same without without. Yeah, Billy. I love I mean, Billy. I loved Billy. He was a great guy. Absolutely. Um, go the the HRB thing was Jesse Perez and Ben also at HRB. Yes. You guys yes. had quite a crew over there. Yes. Yeah. It was also to tell you the truth, it was a bit self-serving because like I felt like I had it made. And in fact, to tell you the truth, if I had not won that fellowship to Rome, I would have chained myself to a radiator at Harvard and like never left. Because we had La Volta, we had Kurt who worked in the photocopy shop, which I couldn't, you know, couldn't, all these bands going on. We had our own radio station that we had to provide eight hours of programming a night, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. And so we, we were plugging our own bands. Okay. You couldn't, as a station rule, plug your own band, but Parrots is like going on about La Volta and, you know, and then I'd be going on about the Lemonheads. And also the other thing is that the Blake babies were, how I met the Lemonheads is I was you know, at WHRB and these high school kids, Commonwealth High School, Parrots, Diley and, and Evan came by the studio and said, you know, almost like, hey, mister, will you put this, 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 you know, our, play our demo tape? I said, let's go out to the car and listen to it first, right? I said, I'm not wow. gonna put it out. Let's let's go to the car. So I go in the car and they put it, they put on laughing all the way at the cleaners. They just recorded as high school seniors. And I fell out of the car. I was like, and then I had a horrible thought. How can I possibly exploit these teenagers <laughs> who are just obviously like amazing, you know, basically songwriters and like and 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 help, you know, our our band. Um, and uh, I was in meltdown at the time. And so basically I said, hey, guys, you know, do you want to play a show? And they had never played a show. And so we played on Green Street. Meltdown was the headliner. And this is 1986, July of 86. Wow. And then the earliest, early, the first club gig, we just passed the, the 30 whatever anniversary of it. It was the, at the Rat in 86 it was Meltdown open for the Lemonheads. But then within two months, they're opening for the they opened for the Ramones at Brandeis. They were like in a completely different category. Yeah, they really they had yeah. a fast trajectory upwards. Um, I'm going to, I have to talk to you about my, we haven't got to my fa favorite topic yet. We'll get into that, which is the lovey album, but let me work oh, yeah. my way up to that. So is the story, I guess the story goes like this, Bolt LaVolta and the Lemonheads were touring in Europe together. And I guess that's when you switch teams. Is that what happened? <laughs> um, it, it was basically, here's the chronology. I was in Meltdown first, and then Chris and I helped form Bullet La Volta. But I knew I was going to Italy, so I leave Bullet La Volta and Kenny steps in. And again, just think, Moving Targets, 1986-87 with Pat Brady, with Pat Leonard, with with Kenny. It's one of the greatest rock yeah. bands that's ever existed. I mean, anywhere. I mean, it was just like, and I, it, was, it was, again, electrifying to see... Uh, Kenny is a bona fide genius. Brady on drums, one of the greatest punk rock drummers that's ever existed. And um, uh, the late, great Pat Brady. So basically, so so there's there was a lot happening. So I go to Italy and I come back and at the airport, 
the Lemonheads meet me, uh, Evan and, and Jesse at Logan. They meet me at Logan and they ask me to join the band. And of course I say, totally. And <clears throat> so with, with Diley and it was, there was frictions already with between Diley and, and Evan. And it's just, it, I, I won't, the story's often been told, but um, the Curtis basically comes to us and said, I have a tank. Lemonheads were firmly on Tang. Bolt LaVolta was being signed to Tang. And Curtis says, I have a proposition for you guys to do a European tour, you know, in the summer of 89, Bolt LaVolta and the Lemonheads. And I cannot tell you, again, you know, I'm just getting excited thinking about it, like in that context, because even for all the unbelievable Boston bands that were playing at that time, you know, just it's, it's they, they weren't really doing European tours. I mean, at that level yet, I, as far as I know. Uh, and, um, we couldn't, but we, again, we couldn't believe it. And we went, it was the most fun ever. It was, it was great because it was, it was all, <clears throat> you didn't know where you were playing, but basically it was, um, it was everything from like a, you know, youth centers, punk youth centers to like concert halls, 19th century concert halls. And so it was like a, and uh, interviews every place. There was no sort of surprises. One of the most amazing moments was playing in, the old West Berlin and you had to drive across East Germany in a van and uh, for like six hours and uh, to get to Berlin to play the club. We played this thing, club called the Ecstasy Club. And I remember that we had this incredibly heated argument, really almost violent argument in the van because Bill Whalen said in the future, we're not going to have record stores. We're going to have our computers and we're going to, he didn't use the word download, but he said, we're going to like listen to music, like files, computer files will be sent to our computers and there's not gonna be record stores. I said, you are completely, this is ridiculous. How could there not be record stores, right? Well, and you're on the ever, wrong side of that fight. Yeah, who would ever <laughs> want, who would not want to own, I mean, basically, and then and Bill says, no, no, we're not gonna have record stores. It's gonna be all electronic and basically, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's gonna revolutionize and, and But he was also saying, he says, we got to get on top of this somehow because we're not going to, you know, there's not going to be vinyl. There's not going to be CDs. That, that's where we're going to be. Now, looking back, that was like, this is 1989. And we, there wasn't even the internet then. Um, and so basically, but then one of my friends, Barnaby Nigren, HRB DJ, many, many years later said, well, if Bill really saw the future, he would have also predicted the comeback of vinyl. And <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, I remember it, but we went on for hours and I was just, you know, so that was, That's that was hilarious. Amazing. So you were a member of the Lemonheads when, when you went to Europe, you weren't in we, yes. La Volta. Yeah. Was that awkward or were you guys just no, all good friends? No, we're all, we're all best friends. And the thing is I played like a few songs with La Volta at various gigs. And I'll tell you something that La Volta was one of the best live bands that's ever existed ever. Oh, and yeah. basically ever. And they were playing at that point. By the time we went on this tour, La Volta had really taken off. They were the biggest band in Boston at the at that time, and um, they were a a lot tighter than um, a lot tighter than the Lemonheads were. And then they went on and they played like 160 shows a year, uh, yeah. and they were just phenomenal. So I saw I, them I, like I mentioned I'd seen them in L.A. three times, and they were on fire on the dates I saw. Was in the after nineteen ninety. Actually, I saw oh. them. Oh, they were just they were just incredible up to, up to the very end as a live band. And I, no, but these are like my best friends. And we were basically the thing is like who hung out with each other. I mean, it's like 
we all hung out with each other, but basically, and it was a really good mix of personalities as well. And I mean, every single person um, <clears throat> uh, who was on the tour, including Curtis as well. And because um, uh, Curtis also filmed a lot of it. And so we have, I have these VHS tapes of about 16 hours of the tour and a lot of the gigs and stuff like that. And it's just, it was just, you can just see, like, there was no sensation in the world. You pull into a town you never even heard of. And uh, basically you see posters, you know, with your, um, you know, your, your band's name on it. And also we, you know, um, uh, <clears throat> yeah, there was, it was endless. We also did a peel session. Lemonheads did a peel session. Um, and the two bands in Europe, the other thing that was actually sort of nice about it is that in some places, Lemonheads were bigger than La Volta and other places La Volta was bigger than the Lemonheads. For example, like, you know, we were playing all these towns in, in Germany um in the Ruhr Valley and basically the uh which uh, and La Volta was much bigger in Germany you know whereas in Holland the Lemonheads were bigger I mean whatever but basically um it was it was phenomenal it was I, I can't I, I'll talk forever about it and Todd Phillips who has played like roughly one million shows I think would agree with me that that 89 tour was the most fun ever um, you you play on two songs that are on the Lemonheads Lick album, which is like a compilation, Luker and Mallow Cup, which to me, like, well, you know how big Luca became, but Mallow Cup's one of my favorite songs. I do like the Ben songs on that record a lot, too. Uh, it was lovely that I really want to talk to you about because you put a pretty big stamp on that record. Paul Coldery told us when he was on the show that the band didn't have any songs ready to go. And Correct. a lot of the record was made in the studio. And Correct. the funniest part was he said that Evan was goofing around playing brass buttons. And he said, can I just record this? And he said, yeah. And that ended up being the, you know, the single off the record, but yes. the songs that you co-wrote little seed in the door, I think are brilliant. And that lineup right there was really, really a good lineup. Uh, what do you recall about the Lovey record? Because I have listed that as one of my favorite. I, it is my favorite Lemonheads record. And it's also one of my 20 most underrated records ever. Because no one ever talks about that record. People always talk about Ray and all the other stuff. But Lovey, to me, it's like a masterpiece, man. I, I absolutely oh. love it. <laughs> Well, there, here's the story is that um, Lovey was the first, uh, the first three albums, including Lick, were on Tang. And, and Lick, it's, we have to basically book a eight hour show to talk about the making of Lick. I mean, and which was real, that, that album was really pulled, pulled together from a lot of, we didn't have an album. We had like 10 minutes worth of material. And so basically, so, so that's why, you know, it is the album that's why we're doing super fatazioni songs that's why we're doing you know we're it's just pulling a lot of stuff together um lovey yes this is true and the thing is the, it was the first album for atlantic and yeah um i think favorite spanish dishes came out before lovey or to come up after i can't remember but basically but it's the first full-length album and there was a lot riding on the lemonheads and they were at the next level they were you know playing shows you know at a at a much much higher level than when I was in them, because I was um, I was technically whether I was in the Lemonheads or not was like sort of <clears throat> a bit of a question. Some gigs I would play, some some I didn't. Um, I remember one. Um, well, anyway, I, the making of Lovey. I couldn't believe we're working with Coltree. Was also one of these things that he was already legendary. I mean, this was like, and he was a really good producer, and he 
he also just ordered me around like in a really good way. I mean, he basically like, he like, cause with my solos and stuff like that, he would point out, he says like, you just repeated that phrase 30 times, you know, it's okay. You know, so let's try it again. And, um, and he was, but he, he got the best out of me. He really, really sort of pushed me on the um, door, man. Your lead on that is yes. freaking phenomenal. I don't remember. Basically there was the, I, I remember the, the writing of little seed uh, basically in 8990, I had to write my dissertation and get out of Harvard. And I didn't get out of a bathrobe for a year. I basically just got up and I just wrote. And um, but uh, I wasn't doing much with the Lemonheads. Sometimes I'd play with them, sometimes I wouldn't. But I really wanted to put together a show at the Middle East with Kenny Chambers and with Clay Tarver. And it was called Bar it was called Brennan Tarver, like Brennan Chambers Tarver Overdrive, BCTO. And so I just wanted to play and just to get out of my bathrobe. And um, so I wrote songs for that uh, occasion, but Little Seed was one of the ones that I that I wrote. Wow. And specific, I wrote it for BCTO. And then, of course, like since the Lebanets were short on material, they they were happy to use it on the album. The Door, um, Evan and I wrote as a joke. And uh, basically it was like a tribute to this is genre of 70 songs there's a lot of them that start off slow like Freebirds, the most famous and then they speed up so we wanted to write something in uh, like a 70s anthem in sort of you know a tribute to like the outlaws green grass and high tides a tribute to you know stairway to heaven you know all the all those songs that start off as ballads and then um you know and speed up with like a, a self-indulgent guitar solo and so that's the story of the the door and um, one of the coolest things about the door is that while we're recording it, there was some interference with the amp, uh, with Evan's amp, and the radio starts coming over. So you hear this opera type thing that's coming, and that's actually live in the studio. That <laughs> the tube picked up some sort of classical music, and we basically, you know, we just went with it during the solo. And um, it was also recorded at what's the name of the place? Uh, Synchro Sound, which is the car studio. I remember, no, it was at Fort Apache. I'm trying to remember where it was recorded, but whatever studio it was was also a, a was a was a step up. I I think it was at Fort Apache, but basically, for some reason, someplace. Oh no, I re we recorded lick parts. We recorded lick at parts of lick at Synchro Sound. That was that was also like I felt like you know it was Rick Ocasek's studio, and I felt like Boston Rock royalty. So, but thanks for your nice words about Lovey. It was like you know and no one knew which way things were going to go and you know and but i i i think from the first note that record is fantastic it's like a guitar rock record you know i think you know it's like it's not like any other record that the lemonheads did that's probably oh. why you know brass buttons is like you know kind of like more lemonheads even though it's a cover than everything on that record that there's some serious it's like dynasty more like Dinosaur Jr., I think, you know, than the Lemonheads, that record. That's why I like it. Not that I, I love all the Lemonheads records, every one of them, you know, but that one's my favorite. Um, I'll tell you two stories about, sorry, about Little Seed, because I, I have not ever talked about this ever in my life. I'll tell you two stories. One of which is that I was with the Lemonheads, I'm backstage in Germany or wherever, and basically I'm, I'm, I'm just warming up and I'm playing Little Seed. And this guy comes in, and grabs the guitar and says, no, that's not how it's played at all. He, these are the chords of Little Seed. <laughs> and, and of course, like I wrote the song. So basically <laughs> the second thing was uh, about Little Seed is that it's the lead is irreproducible live because uh, it's four different tunings. 
like the lead, I tuned the guitar four different ways during the lead. So basically it's a, um, Whoa. you can do that in the studio, but you can't do it live. That's hardcore, man. That was coldery. That's, that's like, that's total coldery. That's like, you know. Uh, there was one other thing I have to ask you about. We, we, you, you're, you're a good interview. You, you, you can talk about a lot of cool stuff, man. I appreciate that. Um, I was watching the footage of the Bill Whalen tribute. Pretty cool. I wish I would have known about that. I would have liked to have gone, but I think, was that just an impromptu thing? Did you guys it rehearse? It was night before 24 hours. Oh my, my Lord. That was Bill Whalen for your viewers and your listeners was the bass player of Bullet LaVolta. And he was really the heart and soul of LaVolta. I mean, he took it so seriously and he was an amazing figure. He's the only person I know who was a musician at the top level of the musician, an athlete and a scholar. I mean, he was a Harvard graduate. He was a Harvard basketball player. He was an amazing designer, also creative, creative. I mean, he was just an incredible figure and he took his own life in um and in 2020 late 2021 and so in 2022 we had a tribute and for complicated reasons there were two memorial services there was one at the harvard faculty club and there was one at um zuzu's which is part of the middle east complex yeah and in, 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 in square as of the night before we didn't know where we they're going to play we didn't know whether we could do it we didn't know what they could feel like it we didn't know what they could pull it together and we basically got together in Dorchester uh, and Todd Phillips, who was like the ideal person to fill in for the late Bill Whalen. Uh, we just got together. We said, tell you what, let's do it this way. Let's hang out. Let's get some food. Let's drink some beer. Let's go to the studio, see what it sounds like. If it's embarrassing, we're not going to do it. If it isn't embarrassing, we will do it or whatever, you know, et cetera. And so we, we, we started playing and it was like old times. It was like, you know, and it wasn't, for a band, I had not played with them for 35 years. Uh, Bolt LaVolta had not played a note together for 30 years. And uh, we said, you know, we can probably pull this off. So we actually, on the shortest of notice, we do the we, we do the show. And Ben Daly played. And it was just, it was, I mean, he played beforehand. And um, a few other folks, um, Hank Pier the Reverend Hank Pierce basically gave a benediction. And yeah. an homily, which was phenomenal. He's my personal confessor and spiritual mentor. And um, um, yeah, then we played the show and it was, it was just poignant, you know? It's just like, and I have to admit that um, up to that point, I didn't think I'd ever get on stage again, like to play at all. And uh, so we played, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, and to the point where like now I'm, you know, next year's the 35th anniversary of The Gift. You know, anyone want to stage a Bolt LaVolta reunion? I would love to do, I would love to play, even if it's one show in Boston, a, 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 just play The Gift in its entirety and go home. Oh, I think I, a lot I, of people would enjoy that. <laughs> I co-wrote a lot of the, I co-wrote a lot of the songs on The Gift. And, you did? Uh, yeah, even it came out in 89. Um, uh, basically, a lot of those songs were written in 87 uh, and 88 with Bill and, and with Clegg. But and, you don't play uh, on that record at all, no, right? No, no, no. Also, I just want to really stress that by the time I left the by the time I left LaVolta and then I came back here for a year in Italy, it had transformed into something completely different. I mean, like much more professional than I was capable of. I mean, these guys were the real thing. I mean, they had really they had played like a hundred shows after I left. And by the time I rejoined, I sort of alluded to this earlier that even when I played with them in on tour, I played one or two songs. 
I realized they were much tighter and much. Yeah, they, I I could not have toured with. I, I didn't have that level of professionalism to basically play with the La Volta at its height. Wow, a lot of good stuff, Corey. Uh, oh, oh yeah, DJ Cornelius. <laughs> yeah, this is this is periodically what I do is like basically I come up with these like ridiculous unsustainable schemes, and so I was I'm, I teach now at Rutgers State University of New Jersey. I for, this is so I don't take up four terabytes of your storage. Basically, here let me just round out the story. So after leaving the Lemonheads in '91, I did a second European tour with them. Then I recorded a solo album with Chris Brokaw from Come and Meltdown and, House. Yeah, uh, yeah, Meltdown House, which. Uh, and I did it with we did it with Wharton Tears, who had produced um, Dinosaur. He had Dinosaur Junior, uh, Helmet, uh, Sonic Youth, and 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 that was again it was like it was a real experience. That the album is less than some of its parts. Uh, you know, there's a few moments we did play one show at the Middle East, which I thought went okay, um, and then nothing. After teaching at Bryn Mawr College, a tiny college, eleven miles west of. Philadelphia, where I didn't do much music, but basically uh, I moved to Rutgers and it's really spoke to me. 65,000 students. I mean, it's, it's completely, it's my personality. It's just like, it's a, it's a really, really, really great and very free place, academically free place. Like no one, I just feel that for collaboration, I mean, and also it's a comprehensive university. So like, you know, filmmaking to truck logistics, anything, <laughs> If you any sort of area of knowledge, there's someone who's an expert on it. And, and so I get there and I got really excited by sort of the environment. I said, you know, I'm going to DJ at Rutgers at, at, at shows. And um, so I formed this. So I basically DJ Cornelius. And um, um, and because I was listening to a lot of house music, I was listening to salsa and stuff like that. So, so it was sort of crossover. And I continued to do that until... Um, even in Italy, I was DJing a lot in Italy. Uh, so I moved to Italy with my family, 2009 to 2012. And, but then I retired on the highest note possible. I DJed a dance for my daughter's fifth grade sort of graduation, uh, basically at the school with fourth and fifth graders. And it was the best gig I've ever played ever, like any <laughs> medium, guitar, DJ, whatever. And I basically said, I'm quitting, I'm stopping. I still have a PA system in my basement. Um, I'm, I listen a lot. I listen to pretty much everything. I'm having an enormous 1980s sort of revival right now in my brain. Um, and, but I'd like to sort of, you know, quietly see what the other guys in La Volta feel like, but I, cause I think that next year, even if it was one show and, and the Boston audiences, there's a lot of, um, goodwill toward La Volta to this day. I, I yeah. felt, and sorry, one last thing I want to say is the, the Bill Whalen Memorial. I've already spoken one million words, but basically the Bill the the Bill Whelan Memorial, it was a turning. I'd say it's a turning point in my adult life. Uh, I'm 63 now, but basically it was a moment because it was. I love the guys in the band. I love the music, and I loved everyone in the room. I mean, I looked in the room, and every single person was I either knew for four decades or was you know well disposed. So basically, that was a that was a, that was a high point, but. Right after coming out of that, I was like, you know, maybe you know, we can put we can keep this going somehow. But I'd, I'd love to do a La Volta show. I think you've quietly got the word out there. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Thank you, Corey.
oh, I can't thank you enough. This is a great honor. And as you can tell, I was just warming up. I mean, basically, it's, you'd have to you know, go for serious storage to basically um, um, get the full get the, the full amount of my verbiage. Well, I a enjoyed every honor. minute of that. Okay, and we'll take it from there. Thank you so much. Thanks, Corey. Have a good okay. one. Okay, to be continued. Thank you.
listen to that. I did listen to it like four times in a row, no lie. Uh, That's a very rare version of The Door, sung by Corey Luke Brennan during the Lemonheads Peel Sessions. Pretty spectacular. That was a great time I had talking with Corey. Uh, Just what can you say? I mean, the guy just has a great story. Uh, I apologize that I was a little off my game with my brain slip, forgetting Todd Phillips' name. I guess my brain was so overloaded at the moment that it froze up. Uh, Sorry, Todd. You know, I do remember that you were on the show, one of the best guests I ever had, in fact. Uh, I really enjoyed this whole show, actually. It's one of my favorites so far. Not Santa Lux. I've had so many of them. But uh, The Door. Well, you know, you can find that version up on YouTube if you want to check it out again. It's very rare and um, it just sounds phenomenal. I loved it. Um, This is the part of the show when I ask you to please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Twisted Rico. I would love your support on there. Also, if you're on Spotify and you listen on Spotify, you can subscribe there as well uh, for unreleased episodes very small amount of cash a month and i'd love it to come my way our way so we can keep this going forever (laughs) you want to reach out to me you can email me anytime at twistedrico at gmail.com we're also available on all the social media platforms including youtube where you can watch the zoom interview that Corey lug brennan and i just did and if you want to watch some clips from some of the some of the shows, head over to our TikTok page at Twisted Rico. A lot of those get bounced over to Instagram also at Blowing Smoke with TR. So um, find us everywhere. I want to thank Spectacle Eyewear, Joe's Albums, and Baby Loves Tacos for the continued support of this podcast. And most of all, thank you folks out there for listening. Till the next time we say goodbye, this is Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your host, Steve Ricardo. Keep the rock and roll alive.